guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is quite a special day. Um, I have got Robin Horsfall with me. Robin is a man that I have got a lot of respect for, for so many reasons. I mean, this man has lived an amazing life and he has got now a voice and messages that he is just yearning to to send out into the world into a world that really needs to hear these messages uh, about PTSD bullying about resilience about being a man in nowadays world where maybe definitions from the 70s are no longer so applicable but what is a new man like how do you create a new generation of young people that can hold their own and that they are strong and and resilient and don't fall prey to idiots let that be in the government or let that be on the street in gangs so this man has a lot to say I <laughs> secretly I've put four hours aside. He doesn't know it yet. <laughs> I've shackled him to his chair. So, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Robin Horsfall, all the way from the UK. Welcome to my show. <laughs> be here, Steph. Good to be here. Nice to be back in New Zealand. Indeed. It is a gorgeous place. And I hope that the madness of COVID soon settles down a bit. And if you're ever in my my uh, neck of the woods, please, you get a guided tour of the behind the scenes New Zealand. Uh, it's it's a great place to be. Yeah, I was I was there a few years ago, um, uh, stayed in the Bay of Plenty in Pongmatar uh, and, uh, during Christmas and New Year. And uh, I had a terrific time and always wanted to go back but it, it seems further and further away as you get older and older <laughs> excuses excuses come on <laughs> no you're heartily invited there's no two ways around that oh robin where to start where to start with a life such as yours is an amazing thing well how did i come across you uh, there are probably not many books uh with regards to the sas that i have not read and so needless to say i came across fighting scare uh, your book about your journey from a young man uh, into boy soldier, into paras, and then into the SAS, and later into the, all the other roles that you took on. And it's an amazing book for so many reasons. So guys already out there, call to action, fighting scared, get that book, because it's bloody gorgeous. Um, it's bloody gorgeous because it's so honest. I think that stands out. Of all the books that I've read, initially sort of the, the books were sort of Andy McNabb, uh, Bravo to Zero. And this might as well be an, an, a recruitment pamphlet for the special forces. <laughs> I mean, here you were, a, a soldier in the regiment and then later doing amazing things. What was it like when a completely secret organization like the SAS first came out in the Iranian embassy? Um, on on the, the the big television screens, and then the first books appeared. How did that feel for you? Well, um, to be clear, the SAS was never a secret organization. It's a standard part of the British Army. Up, sorry, Miss um, Thurton. Yeah, you, you're yeah. quite right. So but you guys preferred to be in the uh, in not so much known. Shall I say that? Is it? Well. I think there's a huge mythology that goes with 
the SAS after the Iranian embassy siege in 1980. But at that time, it was necessary, necessary for us to be secret and anonymous because of the threat from Northern Ireland Irish terrorists. Exactly. And that was the Irish Republican terrorists predominantly. So that was the big, the big threat to us, not only in, in Ireland when we were serving there, but at, back at home because we're, our children and our cars and our families and our homes were targets for um, IRA terrorists. Mm. So we had to be anonymous for those reasons. Mm. But as that threat died away and that campaign faded into the, faded into the history books, um, some people like to hold on to that mystique um, and so consequently putting a brick across your eyes and um, never being seen makes you into some kind of strange James Bond kind of character. And um, it's not really necessary. It's not really the case. Um, there are certain things that you do that are secret and you never talk about them. Not now, not ever. Um, and that's just simply the way it is. So it's no good sitting around and going, oh, I can't talk about that because uh, you're immediately telling the person there's something to hide. Um, if, if it's secret, you just don't know. It just, it just didn't happen. You just weren't there. Um, but um, the, the special air service predominantly was, uh, initially was a raiding team that became a reconnaissance team that went back to being a raiding team and then uh, a hostage rescue team. But it's a, they're, they're masters of many trades. So they were prepared for Arctic warfare, jungle warfare, desert warfare, um, and standard European uh, conventional warfare as well, and many other roles. And so a masters of many trades. Hmm. And very, very difficult to get in, very, very difficult to stay in. Hmm. And that has always been the amazing thing, the, the selection process and the the tenacity to, you have to show um, over a prolonged period of time when you're putting into the worst possible situations. It is, uh, that was always the, the, the one thing that amazed me, the, 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 the power within that you guys build up, create. Um, someone told me that really, when you think you couldn't possibly take one more step, that really you have only exhausted 40% of your of your energy and that you can keep going and going for however long. How, did well, the, you, um, how do you do that as an 18-year-old, as a or 20, 22-year-old, um, when you go... You were the youngest guy to go into SAS uh, selection, wasn't it? But I was one of the youngest in my era. Yeah. Um, because um, when I joined in 1978, and I passed in 1979, the, um, you had to serve three years of regular service before you could volunteer. Yeah. So the youngest age you could get in at was 21. But in, um, if you'd gone back 10 years before, you could virtually join the British Army and volunteer straight away if you wanted to. Um, <clears throat> but they didn't have the, the caliber of men that they wanted when they were taking 18-year-olds. And the average age when I got in was 27, and I got in mm. when I was just after my 22nd birthday. Mm. So, um, which was a disadvantage, really, because um, you were always going to be seen as the young pup, the one who um, would be ready in a few years' time. Um, so no matter how good you were, you weren't old enough. Um, so there was there were some issues with that. But going back to SAS selection itself, um, people don't realise that it's a year long. It takes a year 
from the time your selection starts to the time you're actually um, qualified on paper. Um, it begins with a four-week training program in the mountains, and finally with a five-day um, uh, five, day, five days of marches over the mountains alone with increasing weight on your back. And um, those five days are the equivalent of doing 26 marathons, uh, 26, no, not 26, six marathons <laughs> over five days on your own with weights over the mountains and um, with set times to achieve. And usually about uh, 10 to 15% of the guys pass that phase. Then you go on to continuation training um, where you go off to the jungle and you learn certain skills and uh, SAS tactics. And then if you pass that, you go on to do combat survival training. And if you pass that, then you go on, if you're not already a paratrooper, then you go on to do parachute training. And then you, um, if you've passed all that, you, go, you get your cat badge and you join your squadron. And then you're on probation for six months. And in that six months, you have to learn a personal skill and you have to learn a troop skill. And you also have to convince the guys that they want you as well. And so at the end of that year, you're then accepted and you're, you're qualified as an SAS soldier and you're allowed to stay for another two years. And then you're reassessed and then you're allowed to stay for another three years and so on. Um, so there's, a, there's an element of paranoia. But you did mention, you know, what drives people on. And I can only speak for myself, but... Um, I think I was driven by a deep-seated insecurity and a need to prove myself constantly. So it wasn't, you know, born hard-talking, hard-fighting guy. I mean, I was, I was the boy that went into the recruitment office and said he wanted to join the Royal Army Medical Corps. And I ended up in the parachute regiment. <laughs> Such are the vagaries of life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and for those for those that don't know, the paras in their own right are uh, considered an elite, a hard fighting force within the UK forces. So instead of of uh, doing the medic, the bit more relaxed civilian life kind of training, yeah, right, straight into the paras. And yeah. here you were. That so suddenly the dice were were thrown and rolled, and you're in the paras, and suddenly there was a different different kind of wind blowing in your face, a far more a harsher wind. Um, and in a preamble to this, this interview, uh, I mentioned that one scene in your in your book where you were asked to mill. And that's basically showing the, the people around you that you have the guts to go in and show all the aggression that you possibly could master uh, one on one for one minute. And you were actually shit scared. Uh, you were actually, you, you thought, oh, my God. Uh, tell us a bit about that much, scene. It wasn't so much that I was um, particularly scared. It's just that there were two guys in the troop that I didn't want to get. One was um, a guy called Steve who was extraordinarily violent to the point of being psychopathic and extra extremely extremely scary guy um and the other one was uh and that was five years older than the rest of us so i was 18 uh just coming up 18 and he was uh, he was 23 and he's a big lad called john and um i suppose i got to count my blessings because i got john and not steve the steve just steve just gave me the willies <laughs> but um john i got john and he was a big guy he was about six foot three and i'm five eleven and he's He's four or five years older than me. And um, the point is about milling is it's not can you fight, it's will you fight. 
Do you understand the difference? So the point, the point had to be made that you will fight because to be a paratrooper, your main role in life, your only role in life really, is to fight. If you can't do that, it's no good teaching you anything else because it's pointless. Hmm. You have to be prepared to fight. So um, I just launched myself at him and caught him with my first shot smack on the nose and then buried him into the ground with the next six or seven punches until I was pulled off him. That was it. I, that was the job done and I was over. But it was also quite successful in um, uh, setting a marker for the future as well with certain people because um, it proved to everybody else that I will fight. Hmm. When I joined the army at 15, that was something I failed to do and I suffered for it quite seriously for quite a long time. The way you described that scene in your book, it was nearly like an awakening that because you didn't know if you had had it in you, if you were ready to do that. Um, it is whilst you're describing it now in, in mildly different terms, I, it was an interesting, interesting read. And that is where I felt the honesty, where I felt your, your choice of words in the book were just a little bit more a little bit more tacit and I found that beautiful. I found that actually because we don't know who we are until we are put into situations where suddenly you have to show who you really are. There's no more mask. There's no more hiding. There's no more nothing there. And what more could the, uh, what more could bring that 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 survival out than a face-to-face -face fist fight, hand-to-hand um, -hand combat, uh, where really, where injury will occur, you like it or you lump it. One of the problems for me, and it always has been there in my life, was that I could never really come to terms with pointless violence. <laughs> violence for, with, for, for no reason. Yeah. Bullying for no reason. Aggression for no reason. <clears throat> and so I struggled with... Um, I struggled with um, dealing with people who were unnecessarily or pointlessly violent. So I would often walk away, which was perceived as cowardice. But it didn't seem to make a lot of a lot of sense to fight for something when it didn't make a lot of sense to fight. Um, as the years passed, I realized that that was going to have a negative effect. And so I learned to deal with people like that. Um, and after I almost got beaten to death in my bed, by two guys one night. Um, I, I flipped to the point where if anybody was looking for it, I was going to give it to them. Mm. I didn't go out picking on people or bullying people, but if anybody was looking mm. for trouble, they were going to get it from me and they were going to get it straight away and they were going to get it viciously and violently and unskillfully until they, led, they learned to leave me alone or learned to leave other people alone as well. And I still have a deep-seated hatred of bullies. I really, really do. I will interfere in any situation where I feel somebody is um, bullying somebody else. Hmm. Um, no matter what the risk, I will step in and say, this has to stop. <laughs> and indeed, that led you later to, to create so many beautiful things, including the Karate Foundation in, the, in London uh, and so on. I mean, this is, this is a beautiful, beautiful journey for you, but I, I love to hear that. Um, and the way you described that, that, uh, that bullying that you encountered in your book was, I mean, hair raising. Uh, and, and when you look at it, these were two guys which were just pissed. And they they just thought, yeah, we, we just beat someone up. Why? Oh, because we can. And is what 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 
Why? How? What? There is no sense in that. Zero sense. Yet, let's be honest, we are talking the 70s in the UK, where alcohol was part and parcel of being a man, where violence was part and parcel of, of many young men coming up. You don't talk about emotions, you beat the shit out of someone. I mean, that was, that was ultimately, uh, that was foreplay, essentially, when you look at it. That was, that was how you behaved as a young man. Or am I wrong there? Um, no, I, you're absolutely right. Um, there are some aspects of that that are missing in society that maybe um, it's swung too far the other way. Touché. In the sense that people are, people are, young men specifically these days are very concerned about how to be masculine mm -hmm. without being misogynists. Um, and um, they feel that they have to prove how nice they are. And um, unfortunately, that, um, that yeah. often plays against you. I mean, I'm a great fan of Jordan B. Peterson and his lectures. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, he says that unreasonable people get treated a hell of a lot better than reasonable people and that women like masculine men, even though they may, they may actually um, think they don't. Um, and I'm not talking about a misogynist. I'm not talking about a brute. I'm talking about somebody who's proud of his masculinity who's mm. proud of being a man, who's proud of being a father, who doesn't care if he speaks loudly or, because he's not threatening people, simply because he speaks like a man. Mm. Um, and so, you know, some of those things um, concern me and worry me. Um, mm. The other thing about young men is that in many cases, they're, they're, they're trained to be children until they're 18. And then somebody tells them to behave like an adult rather than starting to train them to be adults from the age of five. And say, look, take responsibility. Go and pick up the bucket, mop the, chop the logs, you know, and so on. Um, and again, it's made, it's it's training people to be adults. It's training men to be men, and uh, it's training them as well to have respect for women, for other women, yeah. without being, without living in fear of their opinions as well. You know, there's there's this balance in life about. You know, instead of making 17 and 16 year old men petrified to walk up to somebody and say, hi, I think you're beautiful. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what's wrong with that? The first so, words I said to my wife were, um, hi, I had to walk across and speak to you because I couldn't resist your beautiful smile. That's the first thing I said to her. 43 years ago, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> and that takes balls. And nowadays, do you write? That's absolutely not the way it is done. Instead, people send half-naked selfies uh, around as if it is like a calling card. Here, look at my boobs. Um, or here, penis pic. And you think, what the hell? What? But then again, this is, yeah, there, a lot of things have changed from from your generation to the, the new generations that are following through. And it's a bit scary. Some things are better. Lots of things are better. Oh. You know, everybody tends to focus on the negative a lot of the time. But um, some of the things that we had in the past um, um, work better than the things that are going on today. Uh, it became cool to have low standards. It became cool to swear. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh. Okay. It became, language. It, became, it became cool to uh, not to dress up to go to a function. It became cool to be scruffy. Hmm. Um, and so standards began to go down. And then you end up sitting in a restaurant and there's 
poor adult men sitting on the table opposite, and you're sitting there with your wife and children, and everybody's effing and seeing across the room and shouting loudly, and mm. and and you're thinking, you know, you have no standards, mm. you have no more, you have no um, manners anymore, and manners are protocol, they're forms of behaviour that make you acceptable to other people, mm. and they they've lost that. Mm. So in spite of people might think, you know, oh, the world's a better place. Um, there are there are reasons that it is a better mm. place, you know. But um, we only have little wars now rather than big ones. Yeah. But um, some of the standards have gone, and uh, it's up to certain individuals to step up and set those standards for a long period of time and accept the criticism. Robin, that is, I would go a bit wider even there. It is what is lacking is not societal standards, but it is lacking is integrity humility, authenticity, the, the core values, the core beliefs that make a man a real man, those are missing. Um, and they then are reflected in the societal standards, how you treat a woman, how you uh, handle yourself when you're out in, in public. So I think there is a, there's a deeper problem there than just not wearing a tie and, and, and a jacket in a, in a restaurant. So, well, there's, there's thousands of things. There's thousands of little pieces to that jigsaw. Uh, um, in the sense that, I mean, I just those, those were the first ones that came out of my mouth. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned integrity, but integrity is something internal. Hmm. It's not how other people judge you. It's how you judge yourself. Hmm. It's the standards you set for yourself. Hmm. Honor might be how other people regard you hmm. because you're you're showing that. But integrity sometimes is standing up against the group of being the one person that says, no, you are all wrong. Mm. And, and accepting the fact <laughs> that everybody's going to exclude you yeah. from society, exclude yeah. you from that group um, because they disagree with you. I often mm. think that maybe I was mildly autistic as a young person because I've never danced to everybody else's tune. I've never <laughs> sung the same songs. I've never, um, I've never understood the need to agree with everybody, to be one of the team, to be one of the group. Um, and that was that may have been a part of my youthful struggle. Which is, but then again, this is, this is actually your superpower because you can, you can talk honestly, you can see through the fucker four and you can see what is going on. You are not afraid to speak out. And that is what we see nowadays in your attempts to talk about homeless veterans or to talk about the Northern Ireland or the, the, the issue of uh, how soldiers, uh, English soldiers were uh, treated in response to, to violence in Ireland. So you have got a strong voice there and it is it's beautiful to hear that voice because there are not many honest men out there. I want to come back to integrity. You were saying it is something that you that you are not afraid to speak out for the right uh, of others. For me, integrity is to do the right thing when no one is watching, and that is that that you are actually that you're holding yourself accountable, and that you're living a life that you can be proud of. And that is something that that I had to learn uh, after after my rehab, after after going through a lot of shit myself. I had to learn who who am I, and I couldn't come up with a good answer. So I had to actually ask a different question: Who do I want to be? And then suddenly, <laughs> the thirty years of reading <laughs> books about the SS, suddenly you think, 
Hmm. Why not integrity? Why not authenticity? Why not extreme ownership? Uh, Jocko Willink, um, uh, US Navy SEAL, he had written this perfect book about uh, the, the extreme ownership of actually being a man and as, as a man within your hierarchy, wherever you are, you take responsibility. So if a man below you fucks up because he, he just does not do the right thing, well, what is your role? Did you teach him right? Did you give him the right equipment? Did you give him the right attitude? If guys above you make mistakes, well, did you feed them the right information? How much could you support them? Did you do what you could do to make them see the, the, the same things that you see? So that actually opened my eyes quite a bit. But these are lessons that we all learn the hard way, uh, that we all learn because we've put ourselves out there and we made the mistakes, I guess, um, some more than others. <laughs> Me. <laughs> and it is what it is. <laughs> um, so, it, um, From what you just said, I mean, I think it's uh, a mistake to, not your mistake, but a mistake in general, for people to assume that because somebody has a moniker, a label, um, like SAS or Parachute Regiment or Politician or anything else uh, fixed to them, that they come under a certain category of integrity. Um, they don't. Um, you will find as soldiers and, um, that there are people who are completely evil psychopaths and people who are inspiring saints, mm. all in the same units working together and combining together to create um, an effective team. Mm. And um, the idea that um, people, um, if they press the right psychological buttons, will create the circumstances for their success. Um, <clears throat> I disagree with that because there are sometimes no psychological buttons. You cannot think for other people or anticipate what other people uh, are going to do. You can only control yourself. And uh, when you learn to control yourself and understand your own behavior hmm. um, and set a high standard, only then can you maybe create a change because other people will look up to you and be inspired by you. Mm -hmm. But you can only change yourself, you can't change the world. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that's two different things. But uh, don't um, think that because somebody calls himself a veteran or a soldier, that he's a knight in white shining armor who does great moral <laughs> things. Because, you know, I mean, I used, to have, I used to have friends in the special air service, but actually special forces soldiers who would say, Rob, uh, you know, can you walk home with me? I said, why? Well, if you come to the front door with me, my wife won't shout at me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. But, I mean, that is the reality, isn't it? <laughs> Do you still get imposter syndrome? Do you, when you turn up to, to a big venue and uh, you have to speak, let's say, in front of... 500 CEOs of the top Fortune 500 companies. Uh, are there little voices coming in your head saying, who are you? Who are you to talk about to them? Do you still get that? No, no I mean, I mean, if people are good enough to invite me to come and uh, do a presentation for them, and uh, usually my focus is generally over, telling my life story with a focus on overcoming adversity, overcoming bullying, overcoming isolation, unpopularity, and so on. I'm, I'm humbled and, um, by the fact that they want to hear what I have to say. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that 
people want to sit down, mm. important people, people mm. with position and power and status, mm. want to hear what I have to say. And then they ask really, really deep and interesting questions afterwards as well. Not the dumb things. The, although I don't think there are dumb questions, but there are some questions you hear um, from people simply because they can't think of anything to say. So <laughs> they, will, they, will, they have to think, they, they have to ask a question anyway. Um, but um, no, it, when I'm, when I'm um, working with um, kids, uh, which is more inspiring, um, especially kids at college, huh. I share my own weaknesses with them. Beautiful. And then they feel comfortable telling me about their problems. Maybe not then at that time, but later. Beautiful. Or they'll come to me afterwards when I'm having a cup of tea and, and say, well, there was something I wanted to talk to you about, but not in front of everybody else. And so that's that's um, very rewarding as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, so you mentioned Fighting Scared and the book hmm. and the hmm. bullying as a kid. And um, it's very easy to put, it would be would have been easy to portray myself as a guy who had these adventures in this operation and that operation and this war zone and that war zone. And that's all in there. But it's called Fighting Scared because my wife sat down with me and said, what should we call it? And I said, well, I'm going to call it Can't Crack Me, I'm a Rubber Duck. <laughs> and she said, well, it's great, for a, it's great for a chapter name, but it's not great for a book. Huh. And why were you, and what, what's it about? I said, well, it's about me predominantly getting into trouble and fighting all the time as a young man. You know, and um, she said, well, why were you fighting? And I said, I was fighting because I was so scared of getting hurt. Hmm. That's why. Nobody was ever going to hurt me like that ever again. And um, so that was a big part of it. And she was the person who gave me back my humanity. When I met her, I was 22 and she was 20. I was, ne I was yeah, I was nearly 22 and she was 21. And um, she just, she just saw through the aggression and the nonsense and uh you know i was like a dog that had been poked too many times with a stick and she just tickled my ears you know <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful story and that, that is the reality isn't it it is uh, if you can get that emotional maturity uh, if you get a glimpse of what is really going on inside you and within a relationship, uh, what is really happening when your wife goes Arr! and you actually say, OK, uh, I love you, too, darling. Do you really want to tell me what's going on? Not just that yeah. I that I put something the wrong place. And then suddenly you get that flood of offloading that she had a really shit day and that whatever just uh, triggered her has bugger all to do with what is really going on. But that's emotional maturity, isn't it? Um, women um, or an effeminate partner is a, a balance to your masculinity. Mm. And I am a, a believer that and the strengths of feminism, the fact that the strengths of femininity are the strengths that set standards. It's the mother that slaps the boy around the ear and says, don't do that. It's the father that says, come on, be a man, get up. There's a balance between um, a dad going, Come on, get up, you're all right. And the mum going and rubbing his knee. There's the, but when you become adults, it's very often the woman that's setting the moral standards, not the man. It's the woman that's saying, don't go out and do that again. I'm ashamed of you because you're drunk. Um, you calm down and leave that person alone. He doesn't mean it. Um, don't talk to the kids like that. <laughs> and so on. <laughs> um, so there's a balance between the two. 
and <laughs> it works in, in the right circumstances. Um, uh, when men, when when feminine women try to be masculine by drinking pints and being one of the lads, they lose some of their greatest strengths, which which are the strengths that control the masculinity of their balancing partner. Getting to a subject now, which is probably a little bit dodgy, but um, it's still my personal feeling from experience in my life and the values that I get from my own wife. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. So how does that then gel with, for example, having women in the military? And women joining into fighting positions, joining even even uh, special forces. Um, how does that fit in with you? Well, that still fits my view as well because um, being a combat soldier um, is about carrying an awful lot of weight and being prepared to carry out murder on behalf of your government's policies, and that means doing some terrible things. Now. Can women do that as well as men? If it's computer controlled, if it's driver controlled, if it's uh, computer controlled, possibly. But once it comes to carrying the weight, shitting in a hole, um, uh, carrying 50 pounds of a mountain, sticking a bayonet in somebody's guts, twisting it, getting up and carrying on, watching your mate's legs blown off and then you know, just walking past and letting the medics deal with it. Under those circumstances, there's a different psychology. Let me put it in a, a some kind of metaphor. Um, women uh, play the same sports as men. You know, in New Zealand, you've got the All Blacks and you've got the, is it the Black Ferns, the women, women's mm -hmm. team? Mm -hmm. Both of them I enjoy watching, fantastic rugby. But what would happen if you put the male team up against the female team? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, which one, and if you if you take that and then put it into a military circumstance where you've got combat infantry soldiers in the front line having to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemy, which group are going to do it, the female group or the male group? Now, the Russians had female snipers in the Second World War. We had nurses, we had signalers, we had drivers, we had all sorts of roles mm. for women that they could do in many cases better than others, mm. better than men could do. Mm. Um, but when it comes down to the actual lift it and shift it and kill it, then I'm still very much of the belief that men will do it better than women and more effectively. Hmm. And I also don't agree with men mixing with women in those particular circumstances because from my history and my culture, um, if I'm put in a fighting situation with a female, then I'm going to want to protect her rather than treat her as part of the team. I'm going to want to look after her rather than just accept that she's taking the same risks as I take. Mm. Now, maybe that's old-fashioned, but it's mm. still part of my nature mm. and my upbringing. And not just of yours. I think there are certain deep, deep, deep ingrained <clears throat> drivers that are happening on a, on a not even conscious, subconscious, instinctive level, much lower hardwired in yeah. us to do exactly that. So I, that's an interesting take on things. Uh, I... I I don't think I can, I can, I don't know. 
I don't know. I've worked with with women in the medical field who have who are doing heroic things. Um, where I'm I'm just as happy to be with a female in the middle of an emergency department where mayhem reigns, just as much as with a male. But these are different scenarios. This is not taking lives. This is this is on a on a on a different level. So it's interesting to hear to hear your take, and I don't think there's a right answer. Um, I think there will be some women activists out there who will say, oh, of course I can do that. Let me just bite his nose off to prove it to you. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It is, it's interesting. But let me come from that base. Let me come back to your 43 years ago of relationship. Now, you're a weirdo. You're officially a weirdo because yeah. every other book that I read about the regiment or any other special forces it is it is filled with divorces it is filled with relationships breaking up and typically women sooner or later having enough that their husband which they can barely remember because constantly either on training or overseas or wherever um yeah they it never works how the hell did you make your relationship work for such a long time through a life full of excitement and full of deployments? And, and you know, you, you lived a very active and interesting life. How the hell? What, why did it work for you and not for so many others? There's a lot in that. Um, <laughs> first of all, I didn't have um, a magic answer. I didn't, ha I didn't have... A recipe that um, I do know now why it worked, um, but I was no better or than any of my colleagues whose marriages fell apart. Huh. Um, I made some of the same mistakes that I regret, um, but I desperately needed my wife um, as the pillar to hold on to um, when things were bad, and she fortunately desperately needed me as well. And um, we had a we had a, a wonderful we 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 still love each other um, as deeply as we've ever done, but in a different way because we're in our sixties. But um, um, we still desperately need one another, and I think that that desperate need is is what's held us together more than anything else. Um, she had um, she's a mixed race. And um, she was one of the only two mixed race people in her whole town as a child. Um, and I was um, a bullied, isolated kid whose father was in prison. Uh -huh. And so, you know, we, I think we, we found some common bonds in that way. Yeah. Um, but she, as I said, you know, she, she was very much a grown up to my immature, um, supercharged, um, yeah. super fit uh, special forces soldier. <laughs> you're a man of few words and you're very humble there um, because I think that this is a much harder journey as any selection that you ever attended um, that is an ongoing not battle, I shouldn't call it battle that is an on ongoing <sighs> fight an ongoing challenge let's call it challenge because it is Every day you take actions that show respect and love and, and appreciation towards your wife. And I think that is something that we often 
to forget in nowadays life. Uh, I think many people nowadays have become so selfish and so focused on their own instant gratification, immediate satisfaction, that they are not building up relationships in maybe, maybe the way it is needed. And I guess that comes in a circle back to your standards, that there is a certain way that you maybe ought to treat a woman and um, you are fulfilling needs for her. So and that is that's beautiful. So obviously you have on a on a very subconscious level figured out what your girl needs and you are doing that. A very wise man said that men want to be adored and women want to be loved. And I think that's um, that's a very simple analogy, simple analogy, but I think it's very true. Mm. <clears throat> one of the weaknesses with people in relationships is when they disagree, one feels that they have to win. <laughs> so one party will have to win. Um, and I learned, I learned as time passed that it's better not to try and win. It's better just to leave it. And then when things have settled down, you don't have to apologize because you still don't think you're wrong but you can walk up to that person and just give them a hug yeah. or ask them some, and ask them a nice question and carry on as if it never happened. And that is one of the age old wisdoms of life. You know, that was yesterday. Uh, Today's another day. Um, and, uh, you know, we will argue and bicker and, and then we will move on. We don't have to win. If one party has to be dominant and win the argument, that's going to create a problem as time goes by. And it's the most beautiful way if you if you have that insight, because it allows you to to just relax. You don't have to fight. You don't have to win. Uh, you don't have to have the last word in the argument. And that is yeah. so beautiful when it actually materializes in front of your eyes. Sometimes most of the <laughs> but most of the time I'm winning I'm not winning that's the wrong word most of the time I'm achieving that goal uh, most of the time I can actually uh, rephrase things and say look what's really going on or um, okay I actually understand and I did something really stupid I'm sorry I didn't mean to trigger you something like yeah. that uh, yes but there's still days when when maybe I'm not in my best uh, there are there must be days like that for you too when you're yeah. hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and you didn't look after yourself. I mean, there must be days when you are not your best. Do you recognize it yeah, when it happens? Yeah, there's um, that's why men go fishing. Or... <laughs> <laughs> They're the biggest sport in the UK, after all. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I, I I found in the past I'm I'm angry and upset. But I don't fully understand why. Mm. Um, so I, I need to analyze and I need time. Uh. I certainly don't need my wife saying to me, what's wrong with you? Because <laughs> I, at, the, at the time when she's asking, I actually don't know. And uh. Uh, then she thinks I'm, 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 I'm trying to hide something or I'm, I don't want to tell her. But <laughs> the fact of it is I haven't worked it out yet. And um, later on, I will I will come back, have some time on my own, go for a walk on the mountains or something, go fishing, and I'll come back later and I'll realise that yeah, I was I was fed up because this guy said this or this post came up or mm -hmm. this person let me down. Exactly. Or I'm worried about kids or you know whatever. 
<laughs> exactly. Oh, that's beautiful, and that's that's the 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 key. We often either make ourselves so busy or accept that life intrudes, and we are constantly on that hamster wheel, and we very rarely yeah. step off and actually just stop and think. And some people call it meditating. Uh, for me, it often happens when I when I swim lengths in the pool. Um, last night, I sort of swam and and I was I was ratty. I was I was a little bit funny. I had achieved a lot in the day. It was good, and then suddenly, uh, it was not a nice evening. And so suddenly, during the swimming, it was just nice, and there was a serenity came over me, and that is the beautiful thing. So if you can figure out something that resets you and get you out of this stinking thinking somehow, then this is a beautiful thing. The same happened with me on the, in the dojo in the past. It was beautiful. There would be school problems and all kind of other things outside. The moment I was in the dojo, oh, there was a, a, a serenity coming over me, I must say, and everything else dropped away. Does that happen when you step into the dojo? Well, it's a long time since I've uh, been in the dojo. Uh, uh -huh. About it must be about ten years ago. I broke my neck, uh -huh. and um, and so um, that stopped me from. I'd, I'd been teaching karate for thirty yeah. years by then, um, but um, so I had to stop and hand over to my oldest son. Um, but I do know that many of my adult students who uh, were very busy professionals um, used to come and say, you know, the way I. The way I would um, run my classes, I would give them an awful lot to think about um, technically and physically while they were working. And they would say, Rob, in that two hours, the only two hours in the week when I can't think about anything else but what you're saying <laughs> and what I'm doing, because you challenge me constantly every second. And, and that's an escape. That's an yeah. escape from life. Um, yeah. One of my old Japanese uh, teachers um, I used to pick up a huge amount of um, really profound wisdom from the old Japanese teachers. Um, but one of them said life's a balance between three things. It's a balance between you, your work, and your family. And each part has to have a third of your life. So if you're focused totally on your work, your family suffer. Mm. You to focus totally on your family, your work suffers. Mm -hmm. And everybody's going around work, family, work, family, work, family, but they forget about themselves. They forget about the me bit. And you have to have the me bit. You have mm. to have the fishing, the, the, mm. the, the, the night out with the lads, mm. um, laughing and telling dirty jokes, and mm. doing whatever it is you do. Um, and um, you have to have you time as well, mm. something that is only for you, not for your not to take your son with you, not to take your daughter with you, not to share with anybody else and not to improve your income, but just selfishly and wholeheartedly for you mm. because it will help you with your life a great deal. It's the, the, the principle of sharpening the soul. I think Abraham Lincoln said it, that if he had eight hours to fell a tree, he would spend six hours sharpening his axe. Um, and I think that is so important. And I, I'm the worst at it. I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Boom and Bust. I'm a man who, uh, who learned. Uh, my self worth came from the, my achievements. 
So therefore, I felt good when I worked, and therefore I worked 12 hours, 14, 16 hours. And I mean, I couldn't work anymore. I started drinking because then that was, again, a way how I could then escape my reality, escape maybe the negative emotions, the PTSD that I didn't have, that I didn't realize I had uh, until much later, the, all the other negative emotions that I never had learned to deal with. Let me come back to that actually, because your negative emotions um they were they were always there the the bullying the p t s d uh from those kind of aspects and and many other things that uh that formed you and made you the the young man that you were. when did you learn awareness with regards to the PTSD, for example. When did you learn that the bullying or your hatred to, to, against bullies was actually an important driver for you? When did that realization came? Uh, I think that's two different things, but um, <clears throat> PTSD, um, I never realized that I had any kind of problem in that regard until I came back from Mozambique and I was in a war down there as a company commander for uh, 15 months. Um, very much an infantry war, no air cover, no heavy artillery, wonderful soldiers, wonderful troops, um, fighting on the right side for the Frelimo government, um, which is the government of Mozambique. And um, But it was um, a country where food was in short supply, and we had to feed our troops, and the food was getting stolen or going missing, and so our troops were on half rations. So you'd have a cold night. And you take three dead men in the morning because um, because they died of malaria, because malaria is endemic and um, they live with it. But because they weren't getting fed and because it was a cold night, you had three dead men in the morning from malaria alone. Um, you, um, <clears throat> again, uh, I remember a time when we discovered the body of a woman who had um, her head chopped off um, because, so because the person stole her bunch of bananas uh, that's type of reality that you live in uh, starving children around you no wildlife no food um, it's not wars and guns and bullets that kill people it's it's the effects of wars it's the starvation and the disease that kills more people than the actual bombs and bullets um, but I came back from Mozambique and um, so I went from a situation like that to a situation within 24 hours <laughs> where people were complaining because the milkman hadn't left the milk on the doorstep that morning. And my wife showing me the pictures of the children with their Christmas presents, um, the video of them getting their Christmas presents and the chocolate all over the floor and the Christmas cakes and the wasted food and everything else that is normal at Christmas. And um, she, I didn't realize it, but she said I was extraordinarily angry about everything. Mm. Um, and um, unappreciative of what she was trying to do. She knew there was something wrong. I refused to believe that there was anything wrong with me. <laughs> um, the problem was the world. The problem wasn't me. And so um, as time passed, our marriage fell into crisis. And um, eventually after a particularly difficult incident, I went to the doctor and I got counseling straight away. And it took, I must have been the perfect person for a counselor because they give you 45 minutes 
And the second she went click, and he went click, his name was Richard Tunessi. And if Richard, if you're still out there, I still thank you a great deal for the treatment. Um, I mean, he just sits there and listens. But for 45 minutes, I was a runaway gun. My mouth just kept going, wah, 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 until um, 40, uh, time up. Um, but it gave me time to unload in a private um, situation. And uh, it gave me time to address my own, my own problems. And I realized, if I try to put it in a very simple terms, that I realized that I couldn't change the world, but I could change myself. I could choose to change my own behavior. And so with my wife's help, I did. And um, we rebuilt and restarted. And, um, and uh, praise be to God that... Um, you know, it, it stayed that way. Um, and I still go back to that. And I teach those things to my own children and grandchildren now when they have big problems in their lives. Um, I say to them, you know, you can't do anything about other people's bad behavior. You can only do something about your own. And that includes your children. That includes your parents. Mm. <laughs> you, you can only change your own life. And then hope that your example will will be an example mm. to others. And it is. There's no doubt about that. We sometimes <clears throat> undervalue the power of integrity and the power of you living a life. Every single thing that you do as a parent or as a grandparent will be watched. Maybe not consciously, but people will see what you do. And if that is in, in cross discrepancy between uh, with your with what you say, um, then very quickly you have lost every single shred of respect. But that again is something that many men don't realize. And I was probably among them. I was getting incredibly angry. I deserve the respect. I'm working so hard and my children don't even clean up the kitchen. Did I ever clean up the kitchen? No. Um, you know, or if I did, I would probably broke half of the things because I was pissed. Um, so it is just, you know, um, walk the walk and you will be amazed how much more powerful that is than just <laughs> spouting your mouth and, and giving big, big speeches and then then doing whatever you probably shouldn't really be doing. Oh, damn, 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 damn. I mean, that is, oh, hmm. What? The first big shock in life is that you discover that your parents aren't perfect. And the, second <laughs> big shock, and the second big shock in life is discovering neither are you. Oh, yeah. Well, that typically takes you a while. Um, well, mind you, no. See, I, blah, sometimes you, you've, you get that tramped into you. Not perfect, but it, you're not good enough that uh, you always have to prove yourself. You always have to be out there. And I forever felt like that. I forever had to prove myself to the detriment of everything else. So, so many lessons to learn from, from your story, where indeed, oh, we had to start, we had to stop. You were, may I come wonderful. to the... Uh, yeah, no, sorry, there's a wonderful Indian story about who's the most important man in the city. And, um, you know, and then people will say, well, it's the, it's the mayor, it's the, it's the uh, officials, it's the councillors, it's the executives, it's the judges, it's the lawyers. Um, and eventually it gets to the end of the, of the story and it says, no, it's the man who cleans the toilets. 
Because the man who cleans the toilets is the man who stops you all dying of disease. <laughs> nice. Without thought. him, without him, there's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very truly spoken. Can I ask you, um, with regards to your physical being, you were a young man who prided himself on the best physical condition. You're going out there. You are literally, you are the alpha male um, there. And you're proud of it. Quite rightly so. And the girls, they, they like it. Come on. Um, so absolutely. And then injuries happen. How did you deal with injuries when you were a younger man? And how did you deal with the injury when you broke your neck? Well, when you're young, as any medical person will appreciate, is your body has a wonderful ability to heal itself. So you get a scratch and it's gone 24 hours later. Uh. You, you, you twist an ankle, the swelling's gone down five, six days later, you're walking again, you're running again a week later. Um, you watch the super athletes that play for the top sports teams and you, they pull a hamstring. And they're playing again six weeks later. You think, mm. my God, how do they do that? Mm. Um, it's um, age shall not weary them, it says, but the age certainly wearies everybody that lives long. And I, I look at my legs sometimes. I go, how did I get that scratch? Oh, yeah, I did it two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> things take two weeks to get better. Yeah. Um, the thing, the, the, the struggle with um, being an athlete, I think, or being um, supremely fit is when something changes, whether it be age or injury, um, and it won't get better. You, people still struggle to get back to where they were, mm. and they can't. Mm. You can't be 25 again when you're 60. You mm. can't. It doesn't matter how much training you do. And in fact, if you try, you will hurt yourself <laughs> even more. So to a certain extent, you have to learn to grow old gracefully. But the other big issue is that people still consume the same number of calories that they <laughs> consumed when they were running up and down mountains. And, of course, you keep putting these bricks in and there's nowhere to... to and so the body stores them and you end up getting obese and overweight. So when your life becomes less physical, more sedentary, then you have to consume fewer, fewer, um, fewer calories. But the problem is, you know, the pleasures go out of your life. <laughs> and so food's a wonderful pleasure. Food is a wonderful pleasure. Um, so as, you know, as, as the other vices disappear, you know, sometimes you're only left with food. But, I mean, if you're, if you're 80 and you've got cancer and um, somebody's denying you cream cakes, whiskey and cigarettes, then, you know, um, they're not doing you any favours. <laughs> you know, grow old gracefully, enjoy, enjoy the stages of life that you're at. Um, but when you're young, make the most of it. You know, get out there and uh, but just be. But you don't have to be an athlete because somebody else is. Hmm. You know, you can be a great chef. You can be a great clothes designer. I mean, somebody got me onto British radio once, and he was trying to wind me up um, in a in a homophobic way um, because he thought I would fit a pattern of a right wing extreme paratrooper. <laughs> and, um, and he said, "He said, so how would you feel?" He said, "If your how would you feel if your son was a hairdresser?" I said, "Fine, providing he was a good hairdresser." Oh. <laughs> so why would why would that be an issue? Um, and people try to pigeonhole you, and 
Stephen Fry says that, you know, human beings are the only creatures on in the universe that spend their life trying to be something else. Um, and I, I think that's brilliant because we do. I mean, a, a leopard knows it's a leopard and spends its life being a leopard. But human beings get to a certain point in their life and then they try to be something they're not. Um, my, and I, I'm not a happy person with the education system because it tries to create a mediocre average for most people and doesn't allow people to move in the directions that they, they, they want mm. to go in. So it, there are some people who are gifted in art, some people who are gifted in mathematics, some people who are gifted in sport. And obviously we all need to read, write and do arithmetic, but if I want to focus my energies as a young person into sport, then I should be encouraged. If I want to focus my energies into um, uh, gardening, then I should be able to. I shouldn't be forced into an academic world so that I can be a very unhappy barrister rather than a very happy gardener. <laughs> I shouldn't. True, true, true. <laughs> and true, so true. And I like that. Uh, I like that a lot. But that is, that is the journey for every young man, every young woman throughout history. Uh, we all try to find ourselves. Um, we all try to re rebel against our parents. I mean, that has every single generation has done that. So, but it's 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 maybe today it's actually even a little bit. It could be easier because there are so many online courses. You can get education that was never there when I was a young man. I had to go to the to the uh, to the library, and I would come home with two heavy bags carrying books uh, home because I was so keen to learn, and that was me. Nowadays, you just go, you know. I gave my boys, I gave them a dictionary, a dictionary when they a big one for uh, to to learn German, to learn other languages, and they just looked at me, and I don't think they've ever opened it because ultimately they learn their languages on, on with different different ways. Yeah. And it is so in, in on one hand, actually, it should be much easier for you to fulfill your dreams. At the same token, there are still the same stupid expectations. There are still the same conflicting pressures on you. No, you need to learn a, a trade. No, no, no. You need to go to university and do something which then actually you do then something else because nowadays the world doesn't work like that anymore. So there's a lot of confusion out there. And it's, I find it even harder for my boys to actually make up their mind, to find their passion. There is so much opportunity out there now. And it's, it's analysis paralysis. They, they, rather than going out there and grabbing the world by the short and curlies, they just sit there because it's also bewildering. They might rather do play eight hours on the internet and it's just need if you um if you if you make somebody go hungry for five or six days uh, and then you say there's food at the top of that mountain when you get to the top of that mountain <laughs> you know you'll be able to eat guess how many of them will go to the top of the mountain most of them will because they're damn hungry but if the food's all laid on a table at the bottom of the mountain and every single day then then what's the point if daddy's going to pay all the bills you know then um you know why should i worry about money <laughs> it's um, it's need being the great provider. It really is. I mean, I was, um, I, I I had a childhood where um, I didn't feel poor, but I was. My um, 
My I didn't know my father because he was in prison because he was a thief. Um, my mother worked in um, the uh, hospital laundry. My I lived with my grandmother, and um, by the time my father came out of prison, he had divorced my mother because she got pregnant by somebody else while while he was in prison. And um, you know, and, and yeah, I'm not in any way. I don't in any way feel a victim because I actually had a, an excellent childhood in many ways. I when I got on my bicycle, I would go fishing, I would go out with my friends, we would have adventures. I lived for three years in Germany, in Dortmund and Duisburg, and as a, at between the age of eight and 11, which was a wonderful place to grow up because there was no English television, um, except <laughs> on once, once, once every two weeks, Hogan's Heroes was on. <laughs> and so we would all go up into this sergeant's house. He was the only guy who had a television. All the kids would go up there and sit on the floor and watch this one English television, American television program. And oh um, it was, you know, I, in a, I would disappear on a Friday night at the age of 12 with my friends, go to the local pond fishing and come back on Sunday evening. Um, and my parents weren't worried. They weren't worried. They knew where I was. They knew what I was doing, you know. Yeah. And um, so that, that was a very different style of life. And I'm not saying that um, there's anything wrong with you young people today because it's different for them um but they should they should um they should get away from the screen they should get away from the telephone sometimes mm. and uh, maybe a good act of discipline would be to say for one hour every day i'm going to switch my telephone off mm. and walk away from it mm. um, because it's a, in some ways a kind of habitual addiction mm. um which they can't live without mm. and uh, that's that that they get glued and they get glued into this screen, and they're they're living a virtual life. And there's real people and real people to talk to, and putting themselves in an environment where you sit along along a table and you talk to people across the table and look into their <laughs> eyes and you you use you you challenge each other's conversations without being able to switch it off. <laughs> um, and, um, and and I love that kind of communication. There's a a wonderful pub in Putney, Putney High Street in London, um, that I used to go to with all my with all my adult students after training on a Wednesday night, and it was the only pub in the street with no music. Oh, excellent! And we would go there, no music, and we would go there and we would drink and we would sit and we would talk until the bar closed. <laughs> we would talk with one another and enjoy being people. When you go camping, you sit around the fire. You know, with your big mug of hot chocolate or coffee or whatever it is, and a little bit of whiskey tipped into it, and you and you talk and you laugh and you tell stupid stories and ghost stories and you enjoy human beings for what they really are, and those are far more valuable than sitting there and knocking up clicks on a on a computer. I'm sounding old, but I I really believe that. <laughs> and and we people nowadays come full circle because you see that uh, young people are uh, getting into mindfulness and are getting into uh, meditation and they say oh, how beautiful it is see I'm doing yoga and all that you call it you call it uh, attractive names ultimately it is switching off and it's allowing yourself to actually be yourself right yeah. there in this moment in time and that is something that we need to relearn I think that is and I'm, I'm guilty as charged I I uh, still am so busy 
and I love to be busy. Create, talking to you, that's beautiful. And then and, and doing post-production on the show, all those kind of things. It, it gives me a kick. But at the same token, I need to actually rein myself in. Because I could do that the whole day long. But no, 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 no. So here I am, a full-time anesthetist, work in a hospital. Then I'm doing my show. Then I'm writing five books. Then I'm doing this. So we need to be a bit more careful with ourselves. And I, I love it. Here you are, a man, coming back to you. You are achieving so much. You are nowadays a, a poetry warrior. You have written not just Fighting Scared, but you've written several books about the wisdoms as of a paratrooper. Uh, and, 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 and you're going out there. So you are as guilty as charged, aren't you? You, could, you are creating so many beautiful things. Well, I'm, I'm settling down a little bit. Um, <laughs> I've got, I'm, I'm trying to write a novel. I mean, I wrote, the first book I wrote was terrible, but fortunately I wrote it under a pen name. <laughs> but you've got to do bad work before you do good work. <laughs> and then I wrote Fighting Scared. Yeah. And then after you, because I, I, when I broke my neck, I yeah. mean, I couldn't work anymore. So I, I went at the age of 56 to university as an undergrad uh, and, did, um, and did English Lit with Creative Writing. And then when I left, I, um, I wrote the Wise Old Paratrooper trilogy. And they were fun books. And it, it was fun to write them. It was fun to um, put various maxims and thoughts and poems and uh, short, funny stories and moving stories into little books and then to self-publish them and edit them and improve them. Um, it, was, it was skill training. Um, but then the one thing that really gripped me at um, doing uh, literature was uh, poetry. And I loved the rhythms and the meters and the forms and the different shapes and started to learn about it and understand a hell of a lot more about how it works and the rhetoric that goes into it and the use of words and how beautiful words can be and how ugly they can be as well. And um, so Warrior Poet A Soldier's Songs is very much a, a labour of love. Um, poetry doesn't sell um, because really I think poetry is a, um, is a performance art. It's oh. a performance art. Yeah. So we're now working on an audio book to go with that. Excellent. Um, I, hope, I hope to finish that this year. I've done the recordings and I'm, I'm speaking all the poems themselves because they all come from me. And we turned one of them into a song. Um, so, um, I, you know, that, that's something I'm doing. But the, when you get to the point where in life where you're a great grandfather and I'm a great grandfather, I've got four great grandchildren, <laughs> ten grandchildren, oh, five my. children. Um, there's always somebody with a problem. There's always someone in the family with who needs something. Uh, it's not always money. <laughs> it's it's sometimes um, advice. It's sometimes love. It's sometimes a place of peace uh, for a while. It's sometimes an escape. Um, but there's always somebody in the family who wants something. So um, finding the space and time to sit down and work uh, it becomes harder. Um, I had... I had cancer three years ago and had my bladder removed and um, that affected my health a lot. Mm. Um, so I'm not as physically active as I used to be. So I, I do um, spend some time uh, helping people and talking to people who are, uh, uh, who are going through chemotherapy or bladder cancer mm. um, as well. And um, there's rarely, a, rarely a, a spare moment. 
I'm looking for a house to buy at the moment because <laughs> uh, we we moved back from Prague recently. Yeah. Um, there's always something going on, and when there's not something going on, I seem to I seem to want to sleep rather than work. <laughs> you know, um, that's um, that. I, I mean, um, ages ages starting to weary me. <laughs> or you could say you're becoming wiser and actually give your body finally the chance to rest and not just push yourself because that is what you have been doing all your life is self-discipline it is uh holding yourself accountable being able to push further than than most other men so that has become an addiction in its own right it must be just the sheer fact the life that you have lived you were constantly out there you were constantly the leader you were constantly the boss so come on that is now finally your body says and your mind says you know what you've done that now for 60 years just why don't you just put your feet up you have deserved it maybe maybe there is a positive thing there too not in the sense of oh i have to give in to my age i i think the, the fear of um putting your feet up is that you might not take them down again. Um, <laughs> yeah, use it or lose yeah. it. That's you're so right. Yeah. You're so right. On that on that note, though, but do you still train? Do you still work out? Do you still do anything uh, on a physical level? Well, I, I walk, mm. um, but even that can be a struggle. Mm. Even that can be a struggle. Um, um, chemotherapy affects affects people in different ways. Mm. Um, some people are very badly affected. Some people aren't. Yeah. For me, it's um, I, I, I never fully recovered from it. I never fully recovered from it. Mm. Although, um, uh, according to the test, the cancer is no longer there. The um, the, the effects of the chemotherapy um, have, have remained. They're residual. Um, my brain has gradually come back. I can mm. think. I can speak. I can talk. I can um, write. But for a long, quite a long period of time, I couldn't concentrate on a paragraph in a book. I couldn't watch a television program. Mm -hmm. It was kind of mental imprisonment as well. Um, so it's, uh, it, uh, it's um, and I don't think it's going to go away. I think uh, as I'm, I think I'm just going to have to get used to managing my life with the situation as it is. My brain's getting better. My body, no, it's not. Absolutely. And, and that's that's a logical thing. You can't undo time. And I I dare to say that um, that that ext extreme athletes such as the, the young person that you were, you are having far more knocks than you like to believe. I would love to see an X-ray of your spine and actually go over it with a fine tooth comb. I, I'm sure I find a hell of a lot of injuries completely unrelated to the, to the more significant spinal cord injury that you had, or a spine injury that you had. So you can't live a life of an extreme athlete and expect that your joints are just, you know, they're just fine. They're just taking it. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. There is no, you're going to be smashed up. And I think that's the problem that's, that many people don't realize. And that's the pitfall. Um, you are, you seem to have done all the work necessary to allow yourself to take it now in your, in, with grace that things are changing. Many other young men, however, 
uh, or not young men, middle-aged men, shall I say, they're really, really struggling with that because they, they have identified themselves so long with that role of alpha male, of being out there, being the best. And then suddenly, either in extreme uh, cases that they walk into a machine gun uh, <laughs> the wrong way around and that can suddenly put the end to the alpha male, um, or multiple injuries. I mean, how many training injuries are there out there of special forces who suddenly end up with completely busted knees or busted back or etc.? And it doesn't need to be something heroic. It's just when you train extremely hard, things go wrong. And suddenly, all that is taken away from you. And I think that's yeah. where so many young men struggle. Young, I call it young men because I'm a young man, okay? I'm 56. I'm a young man, just for the record out there. Um, so, <laughs> so maybe middle-aged man, okay? Maybe you should call it like that. I struggle with that. I struggle with... I still want to be the young guy. I still want to be out there. And ah, it pisses me off that, yeah. that I can't be. So that's a path that I'm on, that where I, I'm working on here, but equally on here a little bit. I Use it or lose it. So I'm still in there where I want to do it. My attitude is that when you can't do something anymore, find something else that you can do. Nice. Nice. You know, I, um, I went to... When I broke my neck, I went to university because yeah. I had constant headaches. And uh, um, you know the thing where you've got a hangover? You will know that one. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you pick up the I read about it. I read about it, yeah. <laughs> you pick up the telephone, it's the chief consultant surgeon, and he needs, you, needs to talk to you, and, you're, and all of a sudden your headache goes away, but Christ, my job's on the line now. Uh, and then you put the phone down, and your headache comes back. And you, How did that happen? The headache went away, the headache came back, you know? Um, ah. So I, I thought about that and I thought, if I go to university and study for three years, that'll be my telephone. That'll take my mind ah. off my headaches while, while my neck improves and gets better. And that's, that's, what I, that's why I, I decided to do that. <laughs> In order to get to that point, to develop that insight, was there a darkness? Did you, did you go into a depression? Did you go into a darkness? No. No, I, I, I was fortunate because I trained Alex, my oldest son, to um, to um, be competent enough to take over the business. Yeah. So I wasn't worried about the business continuing. He took over students. I mean, he was 28 at the time, but he did a really good job. I mean, he's 38 now. Mm. No, he's 30, he's nearly 40, but um, you know, and he's done a wonderful job. Uh, um, I was there to advise, but he had to do the practical work, teach yeah. the classes run them we had nearly a thousand children and wow. about 50 adults uh, in our in our organization in London at that time and um, so I wasn't worried so much about that and um, I had been fortunate to uh, have some savings um, so um, you know those would have been the big concerns and as as time's gone by the you know the, the um, uh, I couldn't teach karate anymore so I started to write. I started to um, do after-dinner speeches mm. and speak at conferences mm. and talk to schools and corporations, mm. not in the aspects that they expected. In the same way you mentioned fighting scared, um, most a lot of people come back and say it wasn't what I expected. I thought it was <laughs> going to be a gas and smashing and bashing book. And um, I, I stand up there and I talk about certain things, even then 
even when it's very short. Uh, um, I did a, a speech for a major British corporation, but they only gave me 15 minutes. <laughs> and so I mentioned bullying, and I said, if you... And these, these are all uh, chief executives and vice presidents. And I said, if you use isolation, intimidation, or humiliation in your workplace, no matter for what reason, you are a bully. Ooh, <laughs> and nice. um, nice. and, um, and I, I left them with something in that short space of time that they could focus on. Yeah. And a few of them not got back to me the next day and they felt that they were victims. These are, these are highly successful people. And I said, and do you work with the person that you, is making you feel that way? Uh-huh. And they said, yes. And I said, was that, were they at the meeting? I said, yes. I said, so what you do is you get a piece of A4 paper in a frame and you leave it there so every time he comes into your office those three words are going to be on the wall to remind him of what I said on that day <laughs> I like it I like it a lot wow no that's that's nuts I mean that's I'm assuming him <laughs> I like it. I like it though, because you you're calling a spade a spade, and I, that is that is what I so so appreciate on you, and that is why your book uh, touched me more than many many other books. Out of interest, what is the what is the Ministry of Defence's attitude towards you speaking out, and maybe to a certain degree also being critical about? about um, veterans, about the, the way that the uh, British soldiers are portrayed or dealt with in the aftermath um, of the, the violence with the Re- Irish Republican Army? The Ministry of Defence, um, regarding my what I say and what I write, don't have a problem because I have never revealed any uh, secrets. I have never broken the, the British Official Secrets Act. Yeah. And I had no agreement with the Special Air Service uh, not to write. Um, I oh. left before those kind of agreements came into, into ah, frame. I was about to ask, because that is something that we see nowadays. Mm. Um, there's, there is a, virtually everyone in, in, in my job. I've got a gag clause in virtually every, every contract that there is, and which is weird. That explains. Yeah. Ah. I mean, I left the I left the British Army in 1984. Yeah. But it was only after um, Andy McNabb wrote his Bravo yeah. Two Zero, yeah. and um, General Peter de la Billia, uh, oh. wrote Looking for Trouble that they then got upset because certain uh, pieces of information in those books were sensitive, hmm. and it was it should never have been published. Uh-huh. And so consequently, these rules came in. But that was after I left. Um, but yeah. I've always tried to portray um, the regiment and the, 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 the units that I served with in a very positive light. Mm. On the second point, which is um, Northern Ireland, um, there are people around the world who consider themselves to be Irish, although they're about as Irish as I am French. <laughs> They live in New Zealand and Australia and America and South America and everywhere else in the world. Um, I have an ancestor who was French. Their name was Romance. They come from Le Mans. And um, but I'm not French, and those people aren't Irish, and they don't know anything about modern Irish history. Hmm. But they have an opinion, and that opinion is based on um, myths that are 
that, that, that are left back in history. Yeah. Um, Northern Ireland um, was partitioned by agreement with the Re new Republic of Era. Um, I th think it was in 1920. And gradually over the next 30 years, they, ERA received complete independence, the Republic of Ireland. Huh. But Northern Ireland was, was, um, was kept, probably because it had its shipyards, also because um, it was a predominantly Protestant. And most of those Protestants, as her their heritage was from Scotland. Um, the country's problems uh, were, were predominantly historical, created by the the religious divide between Protestant and Catholic. In 1969, law and order broke down in Northern Ireland. Not in ERA, not in the Republic of Ireland, in Northern Ireland, between the Protestants and Catholics. The Catholics were being oppressed and they were being denied their civil rights. Um, the Protestant community came out and attacked them. They controlled the police, they controlled most of the civil society, they controlled most of the uh, jobs and factories and work. And uh, the Catholic population um, decided to get um, to decided to fight back. The British Army went across to stop the two communities from killing each other and stop a civil war from starting. So the soldiers stood in the middle to support the police to prevent a civil war. As the years passed, um, bad politics created a situation where um, people were interned without without um, uh, having to face court. And that fed into the hands of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, who at that time didn't have an awful lot of say in what was going on. They broke apart from people who wanted to engage in violence who became the provisional IRA. And they wanted a, a united Ireland. And their program still, even today, 40 years later, 45 years later, is um, a united Ireland, and they were prepared to use this situation to um, force the British government into um, a united Ireland. Mm. They used bombs, they blew people up, they murdered people in their beds, they, they blew people up in pubs in uh, Guildford, in Manchester, in London, in Birmingham. They murdered soldiers in, and their families in Northern Ireland. They blew women and children up on buses. Um, they, they, there was nothing that they wouldn't do. Now, me personally, um, I have some sympathies for the original cause, but I have no sympathies for people who murder people for political purposes. Hmm. And there's a huge difference there. But around the world, where the IRA raised an awful lot of their money, hmm. people believed the mythology and the rhetoric that they came across with. They made people believe that Northern Ireland was occupied. Hmm. That there was a there was military forces taking over the country, um, and they raised money on this historical um, feeling that you were Irish, and um, that's sad that, that the British government didn't run a counter government counter propaganda campaign. But hmm. today, the big issue and the organisation that I head is the Northern Ireland Veterans Movement, NIVM, because soldiers are being now prosecuted for actions that took place up to 50 years ago, when they were investigated by the authorities at the time. Um, not because they necessarily did anything wrong, but because the, um, the Republican movement want to create the narrative that 
wicked atrocities were carried out by British soldiers. Now, that's not the case. Nobody has been found guilty, although many cases have got to court. And soldiers in their 70s and 80s have been uh, had five years of being dragged backwards and forwards to court only to be found not guilty. Mm. But it maintains the narrative to the new generation that um, something wicked went on in the past, whereas in fact, in almost every single case, soldiers were standing between two communities that were trying to kill each other. Mm. Some soldiers did go to prison for making mistakes and doing the wrong thing. Two were sent to prison for murder, mm. and quite rightly so. So it's not about one rule for them and another for us. Mm. But what we want now is we want this lawfare, this, uh, this persecution of old veterans to stop because it's politically motivated. Um, mm. Anyway, that's my soapbox, and I'm going to stand on it. No, I have been for six no, no. years. <laughs> and that is that is what I, I that was definitely important that we bring that out because it is so important to truly learn history. Because if you don't learn history, you make the same mistakes again, and you will you will pay the price for it. We see that now with the Ukraine. Yeah. We see that now with yeah. with other other. Sorry, yes. There's a uh, your viewers. There's an excellent uh, objective book called Pig in the Middle, which is available on Amazon, written by a guy called Hamill. And read it because it will give you a really thorough, in-depth history um, about the troubles of Northern Ireland from 1969 to 1985. And it's extremely fair and informative. So if it's a concern of yours or you want to know nice. more about it, Pig in the Middle. Pig in the Middle. Read it. It's, it's mm. really first class. I sent a copy of it to Johnny Mercer, one of our MPs who's been campaigning in this particular aspect as well. <laughs> Excellent. But it's it's uh, having the, the guts to speak out and say, actually, guys, this is manipulation of the masses. Look through it. And to speak out is nowadays so important because, oh, my God, you can't say anything anymore because you might offend someone. It's virtually for granted that you offend someone. And then the question is, well, okay, how do you deal with that? Um, will you become automatically the right-wing paratrooper uh, that the other guy, the other uh, um, uh, journalist wanted to portray you in? No, you can, you can be just a man who has got his own opinion. And uh, you are a man with an opinion, a strong opinion. But that is based upon the fact that you, A, had been there, B, you have done your homework. And that is missing so much that people actually do their homework. They just actually just, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I subscribe to that. And then I put some emotion in it. And yeah, let's go onto the barricades because I believe in it. And when you actually ask them, well, what do you believe in? Oh, I, I think it was like that. And then it just, oh, oh. And that is so so important. That's That's the key thing what I've taught my boys is to... A, ask, okay, what do they really say? And then the second question is, why do they tell me that? Who is telling me a piece of information yeah. with which purpose? You know, yeah. it's just, um, smoking does not harm your health, signed Dr. Marlborough. Um, okay, come on, bullshit. We know that nowadays and we make jokes out of it, but it's the same thing happened right now with your government, with my government, uh, just the truth is just that mildly, mildly twisted. We look at one aspect of it and then we make a big thing out of it because it fits the current um, 
the current Vogue uh, Parliament movement. And no, our duty as men, as men of a certain age, is to teach our children that half of the things that you are told are probably not, not really true. And uh, the problem is to figure out which half. Um, and that can be a huge challenge, especially when it comes to, to the news, when it comes to where do you get your information from. Out of interest, where do you get your information from? Which news do you listen to? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I, I, I am an avid reader. I am usually reading four or five books uh, at the same time, yeah. and I leave them in, in, depending on the mood I'm in, I'll be sat in the conservatory, there's uh -huh. a conservatory book. I sit in the toilet, there's a toilet book. You know, I sit in the office, there's an office book. I love yeah. it. I love it. One <laughs> toilet is usually the one that's the hardest to read. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've got the same uh, attitude, although I use my Kindle, so I use my phone as my main book because I read so much. Therefore, it's actually a third of the price if I read a book on my Kindle compared with uh, ordering a hard copy. And in all fairness, I don't have any more wall space. I've got walls no. covered in books. No. <laughs> so <laughs> my wife always... They're heavy. Hey? They're heavy. I mean, every time I move house, I tend <laughs> to give the bookshop a big, a big crate of books because uh, um, I've read uh, them twice and um, I'm not going to read them again. But if I, if I was still in the same house that I was in 20 years ago, half the house would be a library. Exactly. I love books. <laughs> I, love books. I love different types of books as well, yeah. not just academic books. I love, yeah. I love novels. I love, yeah. I love stories. I love, um, but now I've, I've had this sort of li literature education. Yeah. Um, I appreciate, I appreciate things that I didn't see in books. Before. Uh, I appreciate how they're put together, how the, the words are used, how they're yeah. shaped, how they're yeah. molded, yeah. and the skill of the person, um, writing them and aspire to Absolutely. be that good as well because you know i i'm very much um i'm very much an apprentice in in contrast to uh, those people <laughs> and those writers but then there's academic books and there's information books and Absolutely. there's research yeah. and the one thing that an awful lot of people on social media don't do <clears throat> is they don't engage in critical thinking ah. <clears throat> there's no introspection there's no is this true? Should I check it out before I say it? That's exactly right. <clears throat> and as a result, there's an awful lot of drivel out there. And uh, the little puppies all follow the puppy that shouts the loudest or the puppy that's most popular. Yep. And um, yep. the mob, the Romans used to call it the mob, and feed the mob and lead the mob in this direction. The Americans call it this dangly thing. You know, the distraction. Take uh -huh. you away from the main story. Absolutely. I'm, um, I've been inspired in the last four days, really inspired by governments in the last four days, because what a common foe has brought them all together, and they're all singing from the same song sheet about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh -huh. And I am so happy for the first time in years to see all the European governments, the governments of Australia, yeah. New Zealand, South America, all yeah. coming out and saying the same thing and actually taking action and doing the same thing and opposition parties coming together yeah. and combining with the government yeah. and doing the right thing, 
not necessarily the thing that's got the best vested interests, but mm. I wrote something the other day. I said, they're giving up our blood. We must give up our treasure. And I am so pleased to see that happening, that the whole world is taking a moral stance mm. and doing the right thing about Ukraine. Mm. I really am. Mm. I see that. No, no, please, please. This is your soap opera and uh, not soap opera, soapbox. Uh, and you're quite right. And I love it how outspoken you are on LinkedIn and how how clear your points are that you that you uh, let come across. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, you're an amazing man. And we could talk here for hours, but I'm very uh, aware of that I'm taking a lot of your time and that you must be, with your chemotherapy and with all those things, you must be getting a bit tired too. We all are. Uh, tell me, where can people find you, Robin? So all you've got to do is put Robin Horsfall in, um, on Amazon. And make sure you don't put an E in the name. There's no E in Horsfall. Um, <laughs> But um, put Robin Horsfall in, in there. All my books are on Amazon. Um, I'm very easy to contact. Um, there are there are emails. You can contact me on social media, Robin mm. E. Horsfall on Facebook. And, um, you know, I'm there on LinkedIn as well mm. as Robin E. Horsfall. Um, and I do like to people to get in touch with me over for lots and lots of different reasons. Um, I get I, I take the abuse from certain people, um, but that's only to be expected. But you've got to leave the door open yeah. so that the good people can come through as well. Yeah. Um, but I've got this policy with abusers. If you block and delete, I don't respond. I did make um, I did respond to one today, which is why it was fresh in my mind. And I said I said I I said I never never respond. I, I did respond to him. I said I never respond to abusers online, I said, but today I'm going to make an exception because you're exceptionally stupid. <laughs> Out of interest. What was it about? Out of interest. It what? Was, well, it was about my comments about Ukraine, but this person had linked it to some ridiculous accusation that I had invaded Ireland as a member of the British Armed Forces. Oh, and, um, oh beautiful. Yeah, going back to knowing your history and facts and critical critical thinking. Oh, um, beautiful. But, you know, I, I was just in, oh, I think I was a little bit, usually I don't bother, I just block and delete, but um, today I, I thought I'm, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to have a little punch back today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was, he was poking the wrong bear, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Robin. Rob, you're an amazing man. Uh, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm, I love what you're doing. I love the integrity and the authenticity that you show in a, on a daily basis uh, with your outspoken uh, and very, very informed opinions. Who will be the, the Rob Horsfall of 2025? What are your plans? What? Who is the new you that you're working on? Let's let's hope let's hope I get to 2025 for a start. I'm more <laughs> interested in getting through, more interested in getting through 2022 at the moment. Hmm. Um, I think that um, I'm going to uh, keep working on my family, keep helping them. Um, I think I want to set continue to try to set a good example for other people so that um, uh, 
that some of them might follow it. I'm hoping that I'm going to have the opportunity to talk to more people, especially mm. young people. Um, I have been approached by somebody with a view to perhaps talking to inmates in prisons. Beautiful. Um, about overcoming adversity. Um, so there are there are things I want to, uh, and, and and sometimes I actually want to go fishing. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. Rob, you're an amazing man. I'm very, very grateful for your time, for your passion, uh, for you showing up out there for the many good courses that that you're that you're putting your face out for. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. And you extremely humbled me for coming onto my show. That's a pleasure talking to you, Steph. Absolutely. You guys out there, uh, look after yourself. Uh, today was uh, a day of of such wisdom and such beautiful things that we spoke about. You know, that no doubt you will you will switch off here. Hopefully, press the subscribe button and the like button down there. Leave a comment, but tell your tell your mates, tell your friends, because this is an amazing interview and and it is it it shows how far we can work on ourselves how much we can work on ourselves and make this world a better place how we can improve constantly ourselves and hopefully in turn the bubble around us so robin is doing it i'm doing it come on to the journey guys come along and and if we all work together maybe we can turn this world around maybe we can do something let's 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 work together let's connect let's collaborate and look after yourself Bye. Dream on.